Welcome to Uncovering Inclusion, a podcast about disabilities in Minnesota. This is episode four of Uncovering Inclusion, part four of a five-part series on the Home of the Angels, a private group home for children with disabilities in Minnetonka, Minnesota, where both children and staff were abused at the direction of the owner and operator, Mrs. Mann. If you're just joining us, it's worth it to go back and learn with us from the beginning, starting with episode one. For those current on our unfolding story, we last left off hearing from Dave and Gay, two former staff from the Angels, who wrote an anonymous letter alerting the Minnesota Welfare Department to the home's neglect and abuse. Remember, there was a couple that right. we met when we lived in Duluth years later who um, had also worked at the Angels right before we were there. And they said they contacted the state you know, yeah. that summer before we started working, but the state did nothing. Right. Yeah, they they thought that they their efforts had shut them down. And I can see why they would feel that way, because they had done something similar. But the timing was the right with us, is that it landed on the desk of somebody who had just been hired and didn't know that you're not supposed to do your job. Right. And, um, that's the only reason why our letter was successful. Now, it may be also because we included how to um, get in and see everything. And they did come in and they saw everything. Yeah, and at that point, wow, it was just ugly. I wonder what why she didn't get, like, arrested or, I mean, because right. children died, yes, right? It's called right. abuse, it's Absolutely. called negligence. It's, yeah. you know. I think the biggest reason is because the state was responsible also to a right. large degree. Almost a year ago, Shirley sat down with me at the round dining table in her one-bedroom apartment at a fancy senior living complex and started telling me this story. It felt like it couldn't really be true. But it is. How had I never learned about things like this in school? How had I never heard about this place and what happened there in all of my years working in human services? And then all of a sudden, somebody's mom, who lived at one of these terrible places I'm hearing about, is sitting right in front of me. Her name is Shirley, and her son's name was John. He endured life for decades with people who seemed to think his life wasn't worth very much. A quick warning that the following excerpt from the end of my interview with Shirley discusses more abuse as well as John's non-natural death. So then the state finally went in and took all these children out, these babies. <clears throat> A lot of this we didn't know about until finally they, somebody from the State Department told us that my, <clears throat> we don't know what you want as your son. This is a terrible story. 
We don't know which one, we know you had a son named John, but we don't know which one is John because he's, he, first of all, he was, by this time he was two or three. He was mute mm -hmm. and uh, very low functioning Down mm -hmm. syndrome. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that was genetic or environmental, I don't know. So they said, would you come someplace where, I remember the state department, would you come down and identify your son? And when you get like 20, 30 Down syndrome young children and they, they're mute and they, they have no identification on them, the only, it was terrible. I, I, it was very hard even to know your own child, but he had red hair, so that I could identify him. And uh, there's a reason I didn't ever bring him home. But anyway, so they, they put them somewhere else in the group home and they different places. Then when I got divorced, then I was involved with this man for probably three and a half, almost four years. And that was, was three and a half years. Was he good to you? Hmm? Was he good to you? Mm -hmm. Good. He was good to me, but then he, we never talked about John. He didn't ever want to see him or anything. And by that time, can't remember where John was living right then. But anyway, finally I I decided that I would move to Arizona all on my own. And uh, when I found a, you know the right circumstance, then I'd come back and get John mm -hmm. and take him back there, which I did. But when I told <laughs> so, so you, I told mm -hmm. Callie, oh, they, <clears throat> he was, by this time, I think he was six years old. And they told me that, that they were going to bring him to Arizona. You couldn't stay here any longer. Mm -hmm. They changed the ruling. You had to be a resident. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So <clears throat> um, I came back to get him. And they didn't tell me that he had been on Ritalin all this time. Oh, a child on Ritalin. That's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. So then <laughs> when we... Uh, Why did we, they put him on Ritalin? Calm him down. He was. He was. Oh sure. Oh, because he they didn't he was, interact with him, so he was like, ah, okay. Oh, he he was, he was, he was a diabetic. Yeah. So and they, they were that just, took a long time to find out he was diabetic. Sure. Yeah. And he had to have. Well, anyway, when we got on the plane, they took him off Ritalin just before I picked him up. Mm. We got on the plane. He was six years old. And he wasn't toilet trained. He was in diapers, which it didn't help. And he started screaming and freaking out on the plane. And the, they told me they were going to have to, if, if I didn't quiet him down, they were going to have to take him off the plane. He was, he, I couldn't hold him. He was crawling all over everything, screaming and yelling and, and running down the, trying to run down the aisles. Oh, it was absolutely horrible. But I did remember that they, handed me an envelope and I opened the envelope and there was some Ritalin in there. So I gave him two of them. Uh-huh. And that, then he quieted down. Uh-huh. But he was, I could never have brought him home. He was highly destructive. When I did bring him home, he would try to pull all the draperies down and he'd, oh, oh he was, he was, it was dreadful. I must have felt so sad. But uh, then finally in Phoenix, Arizona, they, he, he was in one home, 
that was really quite good. It was a small home, and this woman was very good. What year was that? Do you know? Now, he, by this time, mm -hmm. he was probably seven or eight years old. So it would have been in the 70s? Yeah, in the 70s. Okay. Aw. And, uh, but she wouldn't keep him any longer because he he would take the, he hated the toilet because he could he had a hard time trying to toilet training. He would take the toilet apart. He would take everything apart. It's kind and of brilliant, would, right, though? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm always like, well, wow. When I tried to bring him home and he tried to pull all the draperies down. Sure. And, and I had, luckily I had some neighbors that would help me, two men. And they tried to control him. And then he went to another home that was pretty good in Mesa, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And that woman got so stressed out that she left him in the middle of the night, left all these kids. This happened again. <laughs> Mm -hmm. She just left? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. How did you, okay, so did you like well, get a phone call? Well, then the went in and got him again and, and put him in a group home. And he went from group home to group home. Oh, it was terrible. Finally, as he finally got older, though, the things got better in Arizona. And they, they had some really, finally had some nice group homes. Mm -hmm. But he was, like he was really bad, time. but he was, he was better than some of them that were there. Mm-hmm. And, but typical of how they're treating children right now, you know, everybody has to be equal. Nobody can be the leader of the, what am I trying to say? I get what you're saying. It's like everybody everyone gets a war. You don't have yeah. a child that's a valedictorian anymore because everybody's a valedictorian. Every, this is, this is how typical it is of retarded children. This is, these are. I, he was in Special Olympics. Oh, this is just a ribbon for being in Special Olympics? It's yeah. not like a So when he place. was probably 12, or I don't know what it was. He might have been a little older than that. He was in Special Olympics, and yeah. all he did was throw a disc or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, it was outside, and they had a big, big, like a carnival-type thing. Mm -hmm. And they had all these ribbons up there, and these child children would go up one by one, and they'd give them a ribbon, and everybody clap, and... Well, he didn't get a ribbon, so finally he went up, got away from me, and he went up and he took all the ribbons, every ribbon on the board, <laughs> like this, every ribbon. Put them all over. And they were chasing him all over. He was running away with all the ribbons, and I thought, see how typical it is? These people think they're normal. I think sometimes he knew a lot more than we thought he right. knew, because one time they had a, I wasn't there, they had a field trip for the children at the group home and they went to I think it was Macy's or something. Yeah. And people were coming down the escalator. Mm -hmm. And they all went to Macy's. And he saw a blonde lady coming down the escalator and he went running up and started hugging her and hugging her and they called the police because they oh. didn't know he was they thought he was trying to hurt her hurt somehow. Her. But so it was probably he thought it was you. Oh my God, for hugging a woman? Well, they didn't know he was, I mean, they should have known. I don't think they really did. But anyway, the police took him. Did he go to jail? No. Oh, the, good. The people said that. So he must have known that I was blonde and that some lady looked like me. So the first place, the angel place, was that, that wasn't run by the state or it was? Or it was a private home? It was a private home. Okay. Mm-hmm. So did you guys just have to pay for it? Like no, out of your pocket? No, he, he was a ward of the state. Okay. 
Because I never did get any, and when I was divorced, I never did get child support for him. Oh. Which, in a way, was much better. Because if I got child support for him, I would have had to bring him home. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have been enough to, so it was a good For help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did he ever verbally talk then, or no? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-mm. He never said anything. Um, how do you think he communicate? How did he communicate with you? Was sign it- language. Okay. I wasn't very good at it though, and he wasn't terribly good at it. You know, you it know was kind of yeah, his like made up sign yeah. language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did he have any friends that um, you know of? I don't know. I really don't know. I know they had a prom mm-hmm. one night. They still do that, you know. Do they? Yep. And uh, I can't remember. I was. I don't remember. I couldn't go for some reason. I don't know. It was at night. And it was a long, long ways away. It mm-hmm. was at night. Um, but he loved to dance. And I would go over to visit him. I used to take Judy Peavy with me. We'd all dance. He loved music and he loved to dance. Who's Judy Peavy? She was a friend of mine. Yeah? And, and you'd go dance yeah. together? Um, but he had a very hard time with toilet training. Yeah. Callie was telling me, so when did he pass away? Oh, well then, see, he was 24, and he was in a, in a very nice, this was in Arizona where mm-hmm. you could swim all year, you know. Mm-hmm. And he loved to be in the water, and they tried to teach him to swim. And, but it was very hot, it was in August. You know, that's horrible in Arizona. Yeah, it is. And uh, they have to have tons and tons of water in that heat. Mm-hmm. And I, I never knew for sure. He did drown, but not drown in the pool. Oh, it was like a dry drowning, maybe? I, they, I know, according to all the stories that I heard, he, um, he got out of the pool and he laid down on a towel or something. And they thought he was all right, but mm-hmm. he must, was not all right at all. And then they took him home and put him to bed according to the AIDS. They put him to bed and thought everything was just fine with him. I don't know if they kept giving him water or not, but anyway, he threw up and of course drowned in his own. Oh, he was sleeping? And he threw up on his, how, so was he in a room where there weren't other people? Well, they were supposed to check him, you know, some of these AIDS aren't too sharp. And they were supposed to check him like every hour to see if he was all right. Well, they didn't. they found he had drowned in his vomit. And uh, was there an investigation? Um, yes, but not much of one. I don't know. They called me at 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, said, could you get down here right away? And this was, I lived probably 10, 12 miles from there. Mm-hmm. Two o'clock in the morning, and then they called back and said, "Well, you're too late. You might as well not bother to come. He, he's gone." And uh, I don't. The whole thing was awful. But when I had the funeral, I invited all the people, or I didn't invite them. They they came from the home. It was a nice home, and they, some of them gave a little eulogy, and they all seemed to love him. 
So, how do you feel about all of that now? I mean, like, well, that is so is traumatic. So, this is so long ago. Finally, peace for John. I've been to funerals like this. I talked about one at the beginning of episode two. What does it mean to love when our knowledge of a person goes as far as what was necessary to take care of them? As a disabled person who is institutionalized throughout my late youth, my experience of being cared for under this type of medical model felt void of matter, like beyond nothing. Maybe it's because I know the difference in the quality of life depending on which side of the glass you're on. 2020 has been a really complex and memorable year for us as global citizens so far. For me at 34, it's also personally been a time of extreme self-discovery and change. Some good, some bad, and this story has been with me through all of it. This anchor of knowing, of bearing witness in a way that honors and values the lives of people we continuously allow to have a lower quality of life, and this drive to share it so people can no longer be ignorant until they themselves or someone they love becomes disabled. According to the 2018 United Nations Disability and Development Report, apart from the association with income poverty, several studies have also found that disability is associated with a higher likelihood of experiencing multiple deprivations, also referred to as multidimensional poverty. A multidimensional poverty gap between persons with and without disabilities is found in all countries and is the largest in Uganda with a headcount of 90% for persons with disabilities and 57% for persons without disabilities. While disability is correlated with the experience of multidimensional poverty, the nature of deprivations may vary across countries. For instance, it could be in terms of employment and healthcare access in one country, but in terms of educational attainment and living conditions in another. I'm recording. That's okay. I don't have a red light and I'm sitting in our shoe closet. For instance, it could be in terms of employment and healthcare access in one country, but in terms of educational attainment and living conditions in another. Someone who will tell us in future episodes about these huge variances in how disabled people live country to country is Callie, another anchor of mine throughout this year and the reason I was able to learn about Home of the Angels with all of you. I spent time with her a couple of weeks after we met Dave and Gay to have her share how she's experienced this journey and what she hopes people take away from learning about her Uncle John's life. Here's Callie. I was working with an organization for adults with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up going to the MORE conference, mm -hmm. right? And while I was at the MORE conference, I was totally mortified with everything they were talking about. 
right? I mean, like the truth be told, I sat, it, I was in the room for a moment and I sat and I looked around and I was like, I do not belong here. That's the thought that ravaged through my mind because I looked around and I could not, honest to God, relate with one of those peoples. So I got really scared, right? But I'm, it's my job. I'm working. I have to be professional and I'm just going along and hello, hello and all that stuff. And then watching everyone get shit faced mm-hmm. at night, right? <laughs> so like, whoa, okay, here we go. I have so <laughs> so I go into this room, professional woman right next to me, and I see Leah. Of course, I didn't know it was Leah at the time, but I... She's doing this like role playing and you're kind of talking. No, this is, this actually really impacted me for real. This is not like throwing flowers at you. Well, here I am sitting here feeling like I don't belong here. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And then up pops this like super young girl, all like punk. and, And I'm like, what? And you said, a bunch of stuff. I can't remember all of it, but one thing that stuck to me mm-hmm. and I was like so resonated with you and I felt like okay, you know, like I saw this one woman who I get her. I get that. Like that's how I feel. And you said things that I felt inside but I couldn't like exactly articulate. But the one thing I remembered is you saying you were doing a role play, right? Mm-hmm. And um I had just worked the week before and saw the event that you role-played as a no-no, right? Mm-hmm. And you were role-playing that a job coach was providing service to an adult with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And that adult decided not to comply with, with that job coach or direct support wanted. And so you were like, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to call your mom. I'm going to call your mom. And you turned around to the audience and you said, uh, you guys, this is a 45-year-old adult. And you said, give them back their power. You said that so many times. Give them back their power. So that's how I met Leah. Anyways. And so then we like, you offered me tea, right? Yeah. And we had a tea and then we've been friends since. How did it, how did it come out about Shirley and Home of the Angels? So we were talking about how we got into this. And I told you, I said, you know that I had a uncle Mm -hmm. that was Down syndrome and, we st- and you just asked me a million questions right away about that. And then I told you, um, have you ever heard of this Home of Angels? Or I asked you, was this a thing? Or did you know? Who knows? Mm-hmm. I don't really remember the exact moment, to be yeah, honest. I don't either. But I remember it started, and then you were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then we started on this thing. And I just, I didn't know that you were going to do everything that you've done for this like I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would actually meet the people well first of all I didn't know there was a letter I didn't know anything about any of this this has all been thanks to your guidance it's all been a discovery process I mean I I knew I knew about John when I was uh, I can't remember it was like 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. Like, just, I remember being a young girl. How did you find, so, like, sorry, I'm going to interrupt. So, how does that, like, how do you find out about an uncle who, like, never lived? Well, my brother and I found out in different ways. And now that we've opened this can, I've talked to my brother, Mm -hmm. you know. 
Um, so I found out that I was looking through some family albums, mm-hmm. and I found some old ones. I love kid pictures, so I'd always look through them. And um, I found an album, and I saw a picture of a Down Syndrome kid. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who's... And like it was... The kid was on my mom, mm-hmm. my mom's lap. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who the hell is this Down Syndrome kid? What is this? Super cute little blonde kid. Mm-hmm. Maybe about four or five he was. And um, they said, oh, it was, she said it was my brother. And I was like, well, where's your brother? And she's like, oh, he, like, he's not around. And that was always it. And it was never answered my questions. I, last week, I talked to my brother about this for the first time. And I asked, how did you find out about John? Mm-hmm. And he said, mom and grandma, I went to Arizona one time, and mom and grandma took me to a park. And in the park, there are a bunch of... Uh, He's some kids with disabilities. Swimming. He used a different word, but I don't like to use that word. But he, um, swimming in a pool, and they said, that's your uncle, and then walked away. They never went to talk to him. They never, yeah, this is real. Oh, my God. This is real. So anytime I asked, it was no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Anytime, anytime. And then until finally, I was able to get the story a little bit. Sure. And then through all this, realized that the story was a complete fabrication on all sides. Mm-hmm. So I was basically never told about my uncle. I wasn't told about where he was. I never heard anything about him. He was not a part of my life, period. He didn't exist in my mom's life. Mm-hmm. I was there. He didn't exist in my grandmother's life. I was there. Mm-hmm. So he was not invited into my family, mm-hmm. period. He was not he was not welcome here. We'll say that. Yeah. So what it was, what was it like to find find out about so it? So I just got super curious as I was a curious child and just asked so many questions, asked, asked, always bugged, 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 bugged until I would find out more and more. Mm-hmm. And every time I would think about it or analyze it in my very young childish mind, I always came to the block of like, wait, they gave him away? Do you know the only thing to this day that I know about his personality is that he liked to dance. And do you want to hear the other thing I know about him? Mm-hmm. One story. That he got in big trouble, and I think Grandma talked to you about this, because he saw a blonde pretty woman in a mall, yep. and he thought it was her. And ran. Yep. That's all I know. Wow. And that I think I learned in your podcast, Interviewing Shirley. Yeah. Yep. That's it. That's what I know about him. I don't know him. So... That when I, <clears throat> that's what propelled propelled me to, like I started noticing other Down syndrome people, because I was like, hey, you know, that's like my uncle. Like when we started this, I didn't know that it would. I didn't know that I'd see it from so many angles that you presented it, right? Like, first we learned about the letter, right? Mm-hmm. And when we got that letter, we were both, you were so excited, and I was so excited because it was like a piece of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And when I processed all that information about the letter, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would meet the people that wrote that letter. Like, I, that wasn't even a thing in my head. I don't know. It's been, it's weird to know. It's weird to know what happened. And what I know now is actually worse than what I thought it was. 
you know? If you could go back, would you not want to know? No, I would want to know. Oh my God, no. That not knowing drove me crazy. It's much worse not knowing. It's better to have known. But again, with that in mind, keeping in mind that if Dave and Gay haven't, hadn't written that letter, mm-hmm. this would have gone on for years and years and years. But that's what's hard for me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all the stuff that's hard to, for me to swallow. Because even if his abusive and negligent and horrible, horrible situation was saved, I wish I could have made it better. That's all. Right. Yeah.